Holy God, to you all glory and honor is due. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the word, draw us ever closer to Christ Jesus. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week. It is a day in which the church celebrates and remembers the victorious coming into Jerusalem of Jesus, the King of Glory. Now, Jerusalem was approximately a city of uh, was a city of approximately fifty thousand people. But during this time, two things were happening. It was the festival of Passover. And it was also the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So during this particular time, the city would have doubled in size to maybe 100,000 people. Some estimates are even much higher than that. And during this day in the church, we normally celebrate, right, with palms and there's a waving of palms. I found out that this congregation and perhaps... Our age, we just don't stand up and wave the palms as much anymore. Although you've got small palm crosses, right? But it's it's a festival. It's a parade, right? And the emphasis gets on the parade and the joy of everything. And I think that we sometimes lose the meaning, the arc, the overarching theme from Palm Sunday to Monday, Thursday, which was Passover, to Good Friday, the crucifixion, all the way to the day of the resurrection, Easter Sunday, I think we lose the overarching theme. And it's one that doesn't get emphasized very much. And the overarching theme is this. It is God's glory. It is God's glory seen through it all. So let us marvel. Let us soak in, let us understand the glory of God this Holy Week. We're going to be in our gospel reading from John chapter 12. It says this, Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So, it is the time after Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. Oh, not mine. Okay. The Holy Spirit calling. So, during this time, I really did think it was mine. So, but I'd not, I left it in the office. So during this particular time, uh, because the city had swelled greatly, there would have been a lot of people who were not Jews. There would have been some Greeks who maybe were in the process of converting to the Jewish faith, but they had not fully converted yet. So it's likely some of these Greek men had heard of Jesus. This rabbi who was going around the countryside and saying, such things with authority and performing miracles, and so they were naturally curious about who this Jesus is. And why did they ask Philip? Well, we believe that Philip spoke Greek. So the Greeks went to Philip 
and asked him to see Jesus. So Philip went to Andrew, and they both went to see Jesus and said, hey, there's some guys here who want to talk to you. Now, it's interesting, though, how Jesus responded to all of this. You see, he had a laser-like focus, a very compelling focus on this whole week, what was about to happen. And he was not to be deterred from anything. And so he responds in a very different manner. He says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, phrases like, the hour has come, those are solemn phrases, right? You hear this when something important is about to happen. Think about D-Day and an invasion of Normandy and all of those scared soldiers about to cross a very, very rough sea. And the commanding officer comes on board and he says, men, the hour has come. Now, does that mean they've already started the battle? No. When someone says the hour has come, when Jesus says the hour has come, it means that everything that has been planned, everything that has been put in place for victory has begun. So he begins his address very seriously. The hour has come. But notice he doesn't say the hour has come for death. He does not say the hour has come for me to suffer and die, although that's going to happen. He says something very different. He says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now this must have created a lot of puzzlement in everybody who heard him. The the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, what is that all about? Well, later in our reading, verse 27, 28, he says, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. It is all about God's glory. Amen. Yes, it is all about God's glory. God the Son spoke and God the Father affirmed it that it is all for the glory of God. And lest there be any misunderstanding, Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Jesus knew that it was for the glory of God. I don't think anybody, I don't think anybody there understood the glory that he was speaking about. But really, if you take a look at the Gospel of John, it is all about the glory of God. Take a look at the incarnation. John chapter 1, verse 14. We have seen his glory. So when Jesus came in the flesh, we have seen his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. In the raising of Lazarus, John chapter 11, that was a manifestation of God, of God's glory in Christ. And then, of course, 
the cross, the crucifixion, was for his glory. And if there be any doubt in your mind, I would encourage you to read Gospel of John chapter 17. It's known as the high priestly prayer. John chapter 17 verse 1 through 5 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom, whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before you, that I had with you before the world existed. I can't help but think of the song, Battle Hymn of the Republic. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Right? And our song, all glory, laud, and honor. It is all about the glory of God. But when we talk about glory, what does that really mean? It refers primarily to God's majestic beauty and our recognition of that beauty. But it is not beauty that we would see in the physical form necessarily. It is a glory, the majestic splendor that emanates from his character. His holiness, His righteousness, His justice, His love, His mercy, and His grace. These are the things of His glory. The scriptures record praise to His glorious name. They describe Him as a glorious Father. And from our, our opening, our call to worship from Psalm 24, He is the King of glory. His name is exalted Above the heavens and his glory is above the earth. He is the God of glory that appeared to the patriarchs. He is jealous to maintain his glory and is unwilling to give his glory to any other. And he brings acts to the earth, to creation, to glorify himself. It is the glory of God and the Bible is the account of the glory of God from the very beginning to the very end. And in chapter 12, what we see is the focus is on how Jesus' crucifixion and death is a work of God's glory. The cross that we will take a look at and really truly focus on is God's glory. It is God's glory through death. Going on in our reading, verse 24, John 12, 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now I have to admit, this is a reading, a parable that kind of falls flat to our modern ears. We kind of go, okay, um, grain falls, dies, there's more grain. 
But he says this with importance. He says, truly, truly, amen, amen. And when a rabbi says, truly, truly, or amen, amen, it means this is very important, what I'm going to say. So we need to take a little bit of time and understand this very short parable because there's much, much depth to it. So what you have to remember is that this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is a seven-day harvest harvest, sorry, it's a seven-day harvest festival in which people would bring a grain offering to the Lord. Specifically, it was the day following the Sabbath during Passover, and it is called the Feast of First Fruits. Okay, so next Sunday would have been the day after the Sabbath following the Passover, right? So the Passovers, and then there is the Sabbath. That Sunday would have been the day called the Feast of First Fruits. So it was during this time of year that it was a harvest time, and it would have been a barley harvest. So a person would take an offering of one sheaf of their best grain to offer it to the Lord. So sheep, I have some of those palm crosses still. They're bound up, right? And you would take a bundle of grain, and that was called a sheaf. Bringing in the sheaves was about bringing in the harvest. So that song, bringing in the sheaves, right? Now you're all singing that in your head. Okay. But that was about bringing in the harvest. But on the Feast of First Fruit, it was about bringing the best of the harvest, the first fruit unto the Lord. Okay? So what does that all mean? Well, in this parable, Jesus is talking about himself as being the first fruit. He is the best of the best, and he is being brought before the Lord. So let's take a look at just some scripture. Jesus is the firstborn. He is the firstborn of creation, Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So what that means, he is preeminent over all things. He is the firstborn into the world, Hebrews. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. He is the firstborn among brothers, Romans chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among all the brothers. But wait, there's more. He is the firstborn from the dead. Revelation chapter 5, chapter 1. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. He is the firstborn from the dead so that he might be preeminent, from Colossians 1, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
and he is the firstborn of the resurrected. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do you get all the connections here? He is the first fruit. He is the firstborn. He is preeminent everything. He is the best of the best. And he is being offered before God. So in this little parable, it's full of meaning that we just don't understand. And we have to kind of stand back in awe a little bit to see how Jesus is tying even the Old Testament now to his very time of what he is about to fulfill. And when it says that a grain of wheat must fall, we understand that, that a grain of wheat actually has to be planted in the earth because if it just stays on the earth, it won't sprout, it won't germinate, nothing will happen. In essence, it must die to have new life. And so Jesus, too, must die so that there is new life. The first fruit must die so that there is life and life everlasting. The Son of Man, by dying, will produce fruit in the most glorious abundance. Augustine said this, The death of Christ was the death of the most fertile grain of wheat. You understand why he said truly, truly? Amen, amen. This must happen. And it must happen in this way. It must happen that his death must be on the cross. He says this, And when I am lifted up from our reading, verse 32 and 33, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So being drawn up wasn't a reference to the resurrection. It was being drawn up on the cross. He really specified this when he was talking to Nicodemus. To Nicodemus, he said, And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now there's a whole lot more. And I would recommend that you uh, cross-reference Numbers chapter 21 if you want. But here's the question. How is this glorious? I mean, really, he's talking about being crucified. And that's a ludicrous thought in all of our minds to think that this is about glory. The disciples couldn't understand it. When Jesus said that he had to go and be crucified, Peter said, let it never be so. The the Jews didn't understand it. I mean, the, the cross is one of humiliation. It's one of degradation. How could the cross ever be glory? But Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. See, when we take a look at the cross, we must understand the cross is God's power, His wisdom, and ultimately God's glory. 
It is the point where wrath and grace meet. It is the point where God's wrath and grace meet. The cross is the dividing line in history, isn't isn't it? I mean, we take a look from everything of what happened before the cross and everything that happened after the cross. And it is that point right then and there that if you but pause, if you take a look, it can only be the glory of God at work. His wrath and His glory, His grace, His mercy, all met right there at the cross. And Jesus said, this must happen this way. And when it happens this way, he says that those who believe, he will draw you to him. He will bring you into everlasting life. And he says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, and notice, I just want to pause here and it says, and I, it's the emphasis, and I, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He is declaring that no one is excluded from the invitation to salvation. Salvation is for everyone, including those Greeks, including the pagans. Everyone is invited. Remember, the cross and the gospel is the power of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of salvation, and through his death and resurrection, there's the message of the gospel. And see, in our day and age, we don't really spend much time looking at the cross. We get busy doing so many other things. But the cross is central for us. And it invites each and every one of us to come. Jesus invites each and every one of us to come unto him. Why? Why would anybody reject this invitation? It's because the invitation to receive his glory means that you must also die. When you take a look at the cross and understand that he died and it's his glory and that he invites you to come die, that's something that people don't want to do. They don't want to die to themselves. But unless you die, you don't live. We talked about this a couple, uh, about a month, month and a half ago. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is the dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. 
as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give, our, we give over our lives to death. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So, but when you die, thus do you live. It is only when you die and are born again that, you're, that you take part of Christ Jesus, the first fruit, and you live a life that bears much, much fruit. In our reading today, right? Jesus talks about this. It says this, Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. He bids you come and die so that you may live. This is why Paul wrote this in Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And all of this is for God's glory. That you have faith is for God's glory. That you live and breathe and have eternal life is for God's glory that you praise the name of Jesus. It's for his glory and for the glory of the Father. So this week, this week, as you take a look at the overarching theme, the overarching path into all of this, marvel at this. The glory of God made manifest to us in Christ Jesus. The glory of the cross and his glory of the victory that has already been won. This is a good week to pause, to reflect, to marvel at his glory. Amen.